on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I still remain identified with the men's movement of the 90s, or however people talk about it, but mm -hmm. this is not a movement in the normal social sense. Mm -hmm. Imagine in the 90s saying, we don't need a men's movement, we already have the Congress, because the Congress at that time was almost all men. And the idea of men getting together and moving was scary to a lot of people. You think of armies and stuff like that, and it's done a lot of damage in history. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see it that way, didn't want to be part of that. To me, it was soul work. That's how it started with the bardic imagination and the poetry and stories of the soul. And the idea was to try to stir and awaken a, more, a, a greater depth in the soul of men, whatever age they might be. And I will say that's the work we did. What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving, and the new expressions are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance to navigate the space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is the venerable Michael Mead, author, mythologist, and storyteller, who was a prominent figure in the first wave of the mythopoetic men's movement of the 80s and 90s. Michael was right in the center of it, sitting alongside legends such as Robert Bly and James Hillman. By the mid-90s, Michael moved away from the men's movement and founded the Mosaic Multicultural Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to education and cultural healing working with at-risk youth, returning veterans, prisoners, and youth involved in gang life. Over the last few years, I've met Michael at a few public gatherings and have long desired to sit down with him to understand what happened back then and what the current mythopoetic wave can learn from his perspective. Just a note, this episode was recorded in late January at Michael's studio on Bashan near Seattle. This was before the coronavirus lockdown, and therefore, of course, we don't speak to this topic. At the same time, in our conversation, we cover many other rich areas, including those early days of the mythopoetic men's movement, the problem with codifying archetypes like king, warrior, magician, and lover, and the heart of men's work, which for Michael has always been about the journey of the soul. Enjoy. Mead. Hi. Thanks for being on the show. Sure. Happy mm. to be talking with you. Could we begin just by hearing a bit of where we are in this moment? We're in a studio on my property next to my house that used to be a writing studio and it's been repurposed as an audio studio. So we record our Living Myth podcast here mm. and have little meetings here and stuff like that. And the island that we're on. And we're, and we're on uh, the east side of Vashon Island, which is uh, approximately the same size and shape as Manhattan Island. <laughs> and I happen to have moved from Manhattan Island on the east coast with about 10 million people and a few thousand trees to Vashon Island in the northwest with about 10,000 people and a few million trees. Mm. You've been here for quite a number of years, I believe. I've been here for like 40 years. <laughs> wow. And what is it about this place in particular that, that you know, called you? 
I don't know. It was I've never had the experience before or since. I came out here to visit someone. I come from New York, Manhattan, from urban streets, and I was driving down this road to find these people, and halfway down the road, I, I just had this sense I have to live here. And within two months, I moved here. And so then this property, um, I raised my children here, and, and so after the children all left and went into the world on their own, and, and I guess the marriage left and went wherever the marriages go, um, I found myself sitting in the house looking out the window, and right behind where you're sitting and outside the window where I write in the morning is a tree with seven trunks rising from the same root, a big apple tree, like a 90-year-old apple tree that has seven trunks coming out of it. And I realized over time, I look at that tree every morning before I start writing, and I realized I have this essential relationship with that tree. And so it's almost for that reason that I'm, I'm here. <laughs> wow. This conversation to me was really exciting because, you know, for the last five years or so, I feel I've really been exploring men's work from a variety of perspectives. After actually coming through uh, another project um, where I spent a lot of years exploring the feminine, uh, you know, in my filmmaking career. And it was through that journey that I realized how little I knew about the masculine. And so that journey really launched me into exploring a lot of um, both this cultural moment as well as the historical precedent that we're in. And I feel we're in a, a kind of unique cultural moment where it feels like the spiral of the mythopoetic masculinity, let's say, has come around again. And that, at least that's how it seemed to me when I started doing the research and I started looking into Bly and Hillman and yourself. And so I just feel it's so important just to be able to go back actually and hear from what was it like then was it even understood to be the mythopoetic movement at the time? Was it even a movement? All of these questions I would love to hear from you who who was felt like you were right there, whether or not you chose to be in the epicenter. <laughs> yeah. Well, I chose to be in the epicenter. I just maybe was seeing it differently than others. And so it actually started with Robert Bly very clearly. I had met him and we had been doing events based around bardic imagination because he was a great poet and he was a really knowledgeable person about poetry and the bardic tradition, which I had been studying from a mythic story point of view. Mm -hmm. And so we started working on that kind of thing together. And then he had the idea, why don't we do an event with just men, which really was caused by his sons growing up mm -hmm. and raising issues that he wasn't ready for. I had three sons also. I have a daughter too, but I had three sons that were uh, presenting issues that I found hmm, I had difficulty measuring up to. Mm. And so uh, so when he said, let's try it, I said, all right, you know. And uh, so it was launched from that kind of personal sense of what are we passing on what are we representing and how do we deal with these intense feelings and conflicts that can come up between fathers and sons and then between between those sons and culture and so on. Um, that's as much of a plan as we had is let's see about that. Mm. And so all of the early events were uh, 
were really wild and reckless and there was no form whatsoever. Mm. And, uh, and so that was interesting, uh, just to start to figure out that. And then I had been working for years, tr- uh, studying ritual because of my interest in myth and ritual and myth kind of go hand in hand in some ways. And so I had been looking for an opportunity to work with ritual. And so it became that for me. Mm-hmm. And then, and at first, it would just be these odd collections of 70 or 80 men in, in the woods for a week. Uh, basically stories, poems, and, uh, and music. And it was really fantastic. And for me, I was using images like the Fianna in Ireland, mm-hmm. where they would, or, or the Maasai, they would spend months of each year in the wilderness or in, in the forest doing whatever they were doing. And I was trying to reimagine all that. Mm-hmm. But then it, so you mentioned the movement. And so over time, I still remain identified with the men's movement of the 90s or however people talk about it. But mm-hmm. I was saying at the time, this is not a movement in the normal social sense. Mm-hmm. I would try to get people to think about it by saying, imagine in the 90s, saying we don't need a men's movement. We already have the Congress because the Congress at that time was almost all men. And, 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 and there were no bras to burn. And the idea of men getting together and moving was scary to a lot of people. And, uh, and, you know, you think of armies and stuff like that, and it's done a lot of damage in history. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see it that way, didn't want to be part of that. To me, it was soul work. That's how it started with the bardic imagination and the poetry and stories of the soul. And the idea was to, try to stir and awaken a a greater depth in the soul of men, whatever age they might be. And I will say that's the work we did. But this idea of a social movement kind of caught on. And so some people got really dedicated to that. And eventually it all got a a little bit tense and a little bit fractured as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that (laughs) as well. Like what what was the fracture you feel? Uh, maybe first, what was what was tapped in culture that there was such a response? You know, I'm curious even what was going on at the time historically that yeah. that suddenly there's 80 men or more, you know, willing to do that. I'm curious about that moment. And then, what was the the fracture? You say? Well, I think uh, Robert in the, in the kind of poetic style of prophecy and imagination had really tapped into this kind of hunger and longing inside men to be connected to something meaningful. And so that part was totally on target, and and it was something right below the surface. And his he was intrigued with the wild man, which really goes back, interestingly enough, to the green man Mm -hmm. in Celtic lands. And so if it's coming back around again, it could come back as the green man, Mm -hmm. which might be a little bit more approachable and understandable for people, Mm -hmm. because the wild got confused it you know there's a lot of things that are wild poetry to me is a very wild territory and so is nature but that people took the wild to mean permission to like act out a bit mm-hmm. and and that also scares people and you know you don't necessarily have to bank everything on that but i remember i mean just to in story terms i can tend to think and recall in stories mm-hmm. we had we were doing all the events in the woodlands the red uh, redwood forest in um in mendocino california 
because it was so beautiful and the trees were ancient and huge and it, it just really took you out of the modern world. It was so fantastic. But the idea that men were doing something secret or whatever, it wasn't secret, but that's what people like to think, caused the media to really want to get into it right away. And so we would do a week in the forest and the media, I mean, the main channels were waiting with cameras when when the guys were coming wow. out to ask him what happened and all and uh, and so the first big tension came when when people inside the retreat said let's let why don't we let the media come in hmm. and and you know how it is when you say something half the people like it half don't and for me that was really clear no no media is coming in. And I just drew a line and said, if media coming in, I'm going out. Because it's soul work. And because the whole idea was to get men to be more vulnerable and to reveal what that aching pain is in there and what that story, uh, traumatic story that's never been touched is. And that's not for media. That's, that, as a matter of fact, cannot be, mm-hmm. especially at that time. So that was the first big kind of division was, is this something being offered to the media as the kind of um, medium of the culture, or is this something you keep in your soul because it represents the deeper, um, more meaningful life, and and therefore you don't keep it secret, but you hold it in the soul, and from there it grows like the roots of a tree. Mm. So that was, I thought that was the first big division. At first, where it became clear to me, no, I'm not not going there. Yeah, so interesting to think about current, day with social media and all the rest. And I think we'll circle back around there. Um, I think I, we're using it right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we are, I, I went back and I read an, an one of your old interviews. I think it was Sun Magazine, maybe 89. And uh, there was a reporter actually at the time, I think it was called Wingspan or something, uh, article where he said that if the 60s and the 70s or the 70s and 80s was a women's decade, then the 90s will, will be a men's decade. And... I'm curious what you think about that in terms of what happened, because for me, you know, as a younger looking back now, and I grew up, you know, I was born in 81. And so I was, you know, kind of a teen in the 90s and all this, and none of this was on my radar, you know, growing up in sort of middle class, you know, suburbia. And uh, now that I've looked back, I see like, whoa, what happened? It really felt like there was this mass surge and then kind of went underground. Uh, And I'm curious to hear what, what happened. Well, I never could get what people are talking about. Like mm-hmm. women had the 80s, the men get the 90s. It just seemed to be a, a very reduced idea mm-hmm. of of anything. Women, men, feminine, masculine. Mm-hmm. It just seems so reduced to me. I don't know exactly what happened, but if we go from the story I was talking about where we're not allowed allowing the media in, mm-hmm. there were a lot of people who came out and sought the media and the next thing, uh, they were, people were talking about a men's movement and that's, that's really intriguing. So it was on magazine covers and TV shows. Not me. Mm-hmm. If you look at the stuff, um, I refused to do it mm-hmm. until much later on. And, and honestly, this, it was serious for me. I would say if it's going to be about, um, war and peace, I'll come. Mm-hmm. If it's going to be about social injustice, racism, that kind of thing, I'll come. If it's about the men's movement, no, mm-hmm. I've got other moves to make, mm-hmm. and so that was my that was my way of dealing with it. And if it is coming around, I imagine it's completely different 
in the sense that media has to be a part of it now. There's no, there's no, literally, we're, we're doing it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think what's different now, I hope it's what's different, is people could realize that what happens in the souls of men affects both culture and nature. And that's the issue at hand still. Mm-hmm. And the idea at that time, I remember being with, in meetings and stuff where people are saying, we're going to have a national men's day and we're going to have all this national stuff. And I said, no, you know, the women's movement, the civil rights movement were about people being oppressed and people being kept from having the normal rights and shared equalities with other people. This will look like men who already have power trying to get more. And that is so dangerous compared to the, original idea of men getting deeper into the connection with their own souls and where that leads them mm-hmm. that uh, I just thought that was something worth, you know, arguing about mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. and for me eventually worth pulling away from. Because do you feel like it, it sort of spiraled around self, like the personal growth or the, the kind of um, obsession with the self, like versus having a, a perspective that is about, you know, service to the time about ecological destruction or civil rights. Like, do you feel it sort of, that's what happened with that wave. It kind of caused it to spiral within, you know, self-empowerment. Self-empowerment was closer to it. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean the sense of self that goes from the chest up Mm -hmm. and, and the vulnerable search for healing inside oneself and dealing with deeper trauma goes down. Mm And, and, mm-hmm. and, and anybody doing that work could learn the difference really fast. Mm-hmm. And I had an interest early on in bringing young guys into it. I had grown up kind of a rough neighborhood in New York, being in a gang, stuff like that. I know what happens to young people mm-hmm. when they get exposed to rough situations and, and how easy it is to get into violence and all that kind of stuff. And so a lot of, I also wanted it to be multicultural. Mm-hmm. And so I would say things like, I don't think you can call it men's work if it's all white men. You call it white men's work. Mm. Now, that was interesting, too, uh, because we had a lot of people who would depart. I eventually said, and I wasn't the only one, but I eventually said, I won't do an, an event called the men's event unless there's men of color present. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and that created a lot of trouble. Um, and that also was the beginning of Mosaic, was trying to bring diversity into soul work. Mm. Why do you think so many men, white men, are attracted to this? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great subject. So imagine people having power but not having earned it or learned it. Something in the soul says this ain't right. <laughs> I didn't do anything, you know. People that have less opportunity than me are doing better things sometimes. And so I think there's a natural disturbance in there. And, um, you know, that the reverberation isn't consistent all the way through. And so, I don't know, to me, if someone's going to handle power, they can only handle as much power going, dealing outside in in the world as they have soulful depth inside themselves. Mm -hmm. And, And I think if I go back to how those first conversations started at those very initial events, um, they were really about 
looking like grown men and not being able to deal with my own feelings, much less the feelings of my children in the household. That's where it started from. Mm-hmm. And that's a micro version of what happens in the culture. Mm-hmm. And right now, I, I hope everybody's noticing that in America, the person in charge has the most profound case of symptoms of toxic masculinity and narcissism and obsession with power that I've ever seen. Mm. And so in my view, eventually people elect the symptoms Mm. so that we could hopefully start working on the cure. Mm. And so um, in the the 90s, that wasn't understood. I think hopefully it's more clear now. I'm struck by this relationship too, uh, you know, early on, and it's still present for some of the movement, you know, borrowing from other cultures, like borrowing from other rituals, and that there's something that, you know, has become more part of the conversation about what's okay to borrow or use it within ritual, you know, in a lot of men's groups, men's groups will have, you know, the burn the sage and the talking piece and, you know, all that kind of stuff, banging the drum. And I think there's something too, I mean, I was recently at a, another gathering, I mentioned uh, Sacred Sons, which is an emergent movement. It, it started by a fellow and two others who are actually very diverse in their own ancestry. Yeah, I've met uh, them. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And yet there were, it was primarily white in terms of the uh, uh, people that were there. And primarily, I'd say within an age range of kind of like late 20s to early 40s. And so for me, of course, there's, that's challenging because there's, there's, there's missingness there. Yeah. And I wonder, how is that related to a kind of cultural uh, homelessness that I think so many on this continent also have, particularly those of white, you know, myself, even I'm from you know, Ireland and England, my ancestry. But again, I didn't grow up with that, you know, where I grew up in Canada. And there's a hunger for, you know, something, quote, real. So I'm curious, again, like, what have we learned from the past, if anything, about what is the relationship to ritual and, and culture, in particular with this work? It's really tricky. Mm-hmm. And it's become more tricky. So you have, by now, um, many more examples of blatant cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. It was happening back then, but not to the level it's happening now. Mm-hmm. So it was easier to experiment. But, but I don't know how to answer answer it simply. I had had experiences in the African American community in America and in. African communities in America. It's kind of a long story behind it. But I felt exiled from the white community. I had been in a military prison and had profound, traumatic, and blessed experiences. And when I came out, I felt I didn't fit into the culture. And in many ways, I didn't. Uh, And I found myself much more connected in that ease in in particular in black culture mm. and in 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 the, in the happen to be interested in african drumming and could kind of drum too so mm-hmm. i could be part of things in in that way and through that i met african uh people who had come here actually to offer aspects of their tradition particularly people from west africa mm. where giving the tradition is the tradition mm which is very different from some other cultures. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're going to freely offer you almost everything they have mm-hmm. out of a generosity and out of an understanding that the souls are connected in depth. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how the drumming got involved mm-hmm. in this whole men's thing. And I'm sorry to say I've been uh, given a hard time by a lot of uh, r- drummers for 
causing white men to go out and get drums. <laughs> anyway, I'm partly joking, but uh, John Densmore from The Doors is a good friend, and, mm. and he always says, I tell people, even though you did that, you're okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, it, it's because I got identified with that. Mm-hmm. But but really, the root of that is that drumming is the most uh, basic instrument and, and the only universal instrument found in all cultures. Mm. And of course, it's connected to the heartbeat. And it's also connected to the visceral parts of the body. And so it's one of the quickest ways to get men into their bodies in a more conscious, mm-hmm. felt way. Um, and it's also a natural way to get con- cohesion by basis of rhythm. And it just really works really well, and in particularly well with young men mm-hmm. who probably, from everybody's inherited roots, should be near the drum sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was really made sense for that, that to be present. And then I happened to play drums while telling stories. And so it was, you know, made sense for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what we're talking about, but I'm just mm-hmm. picturing now all these events that we did because yeah. I invited in all kinds of African, Puerto Rican, Cuban drummers that I had gotten to know. And so perhaps different from some of the men's groups. There was a real practice and uh, knowledge of and sharing of the knowledge of really powerful drumming, Mm -hmm. both ritual-style drumming, like if you take Cuban drumming, you have those uh, rhythms and certain ways that they're used that are ritual, and then you just slightly change them, and you have a social mode. Mm -hmm. And so we would explore those things. And uh, anyway, yeah. You're right. There is something almost at a fundamental level around this soul embodiment activation. Let's say through through the instruments, and at the time we're also in a time where, you know, again, I feel like the edge of uh, a lot of the learning that's going on right now is, in a way, especially on this continent, of course, like the legacy of genocide, the legacy of colonization. So there's this almost reckoning I think that's happening around really what is culture and where does it come from, right? And I think as and let's say just the you know men's groups, for example, is there a way to you know move towards regenerating culture, but in a way that also perhaps doesn't borrow? You know, like how does how does one even do that? Well, in the sense that all meaningful cultural traditions have roots in art, it is all re-inspiring, remaking, borrowing, and sharing. All tradition is that. I think if if a group um, having held and shared their own styles uh, and, and traditional cultural ways say we don't want to share it, then that should be really respected. Mm. And there's usually reasons for that. And mm. sometimes it's colonization has happened mm. and they had a, people died to preserve it. Mm-hmm. Another way in which, which is completely legitimate is if someone's borrowing someone else's soulful traditions because they need it badly but are not awakening their own soul, mm-hmm. then that's that's stealing and that's misrepresenting and that's got to stop. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, people always shared traditions. Mm-hmm. So in studying and trying to learn about storytelling, like in, in North America, Tribes would have their stories. They would think of it as their stories. But then storytellers, certain kinds of storytellers, would go be from tribe to tribe. 
and would trade and and, and kind of seed stories in a in a wider way mm-hmm. and um because that was needed too mm-hmm. because otherwise you get ingrained and you're losing you know just the way seeds fly on the wind from a tree here to another island or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. People understood that it was natural to have the seeds of story and the seeds of imagination moving about. So it's a matter of figuring out where are we. Mm-hmm. Thinking about drumming. Early on, I had a a, a drummer who was uh, initiated in Cuban cult music, mm-hmm. and so I was learning aspects of Cuban cult music. And then I was doing events with women and men, and then people would say, "Can I play the drums?" And also, the next thing I was teaching women and men to play variations of this stuff I had learned. And then someone showed up and said, you can't, women are not supposed to drum. Mm. <laughs> I said, I don't know who made the rule up, but it seems to me it's up to them. And so all of a sudden I was in trouble with people interpreting that tradition. And I said, I really think that's not right. I don't, it's not, nothing anybody could show me could. And then strangely, I found a recording of women playing that rhythm mm. uh, from Cuba. And so then I just realized, no, you have to watch out who it is that's representing the tradition and where they're coming from. Because that the songs that were involved in the rhythms were naturally attractive to women as they were to men. Mm-hmm. You get into cultural traditions and you're going to yeah. be into all kinds of collisions and intricate dances. What do you think could be learned or integrated for men's leaders, men's, for those that work with men now, that could be learned from the time that this first wave, let's call it, was active. What do you feel is, is vital for men now, men's leadership now, to to really hold or and incorporate into this next wave? I mean, the first thing for me is the soul. Mm. If it isn't soulful, then I would be careful with it because that keeps it not just interrelated and more, but it also keeps it grounded mm. and it keeps the sense of uh, deeper awareness and vulnerability p- present. So if I go back, the, the first events we did were in that camp in Mendocino. I still do a retreat every year in that camp. Mm. It's over 40 years now. Wow. And that's because of that place. I have to go there every year. I have to go. And, um, and it, it's become very similar in a strange way to what the Fianna in Ireland did and the Maasai in Africa did. You go to these places in nature that are kind of host you mm. and, and you get to learn that and they, and that place learn something about you. Mm. So here we are. For some reason, this crazy experiment catches on mm. and we now have long waiting lists, people trying to get in. And there would even be arguments about that. And, and I'm trying to find reasons for um, making shape. And so anything over 100 is a challenge to the human psyche. And there's studies on, on sizes of groups and how much violence increases as groups get bigger. So I used to argue for let's keep it 100. It's kind of like a mythical number. It'd be mm-hmm. 95, be 108, whatever. So we always thought of it as 100. Mm-hmm. And then you have to start somewhere. And so one thing that we did um, that happened early and then it became um, a tradition those who are the teachers, we think of it as teachers because we're coming out of that tradition, 
We used to sit on a bench together. We were always sitting, always exposed, day after day after, you know. Anyway, yeah. uh, and the idea was if you're going to be representing guidance or teaching, you have to be vulnerable to begin with. Yeah. If we're going to ask those who are present to be vulnerable, we have to demonstrate that first. And that's that. And then Etheridge Knight, who people don't know very well, who's a really great American poet, African-American poet, who came to these events early on, he was the one who validated that. And he said, that's the right way to do it. If you expect someone to trust you, you have to show your vulnerability to begin with. So we began every event with, uh, I call it the so-called faculty, mm-hmm. being vulnerable. And, uh, and that, to me, reminded us that we have to be authentic and it gave, hopefully, it gave those present the sense of someone, p- people who were in minor temporary positions of power mm. coming from the soul and from vulnerable places in the soul. And that didn't just create permission, that created a mission mm. that if you're here, you should take the opportunity and bear your soul. Mm. Because in the daily world, you're unlikely to have, uh, well, that could be dangerous and you're unlikely to to be protected or get the healing that you're looking for. Mm. And mm. so that was the core of what we were doing. It was mm. healing. It was artistic, creative, mythic, poetic work combined with healing whoever shows up. Mm. Beautiful. What's the link between men and, and perhaps men's spaces and vulnerability? Like why is that possible in that with that alchemy? Well, so you know, we're trying to figure this out. And, and again, we would have no form. And, and we're trying to actually orga- organically experience the, the chaos and the vulnerability and, and then recognize things that have like immediate, uh, validity. So in Ireland, there was a tradition where young men learned to sing laments. And often the laments were the story inside the song was a woman lamenting. So without having any big discussions uh, on an academic level of the masculine and the feminine, you would have young men singing from the broken-hearted place of a young woman. And I happen to know that. So then I I would say we let's let's lament. We have to lament. And then that fits in with things you find, you know, in other traditions. And so um, so the idea was to get at vulnerability. And since the other part of the energy we were working with was creative poetry and stuff, that also was a vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So we tried everything we could to get everybody in a vulnerable space. And then I was interested in radical ritual, mm-hmm. ritual where you don't know where it's going and therefore everybody gets transformed. Mm-hmm. And so some some of the oldest rituals I found were based on the idea that the afflicted person or persons are sacred, and they go in the middle of everything. And so I was dying to experiment with having someone cracks open, breaks down. They're the center of the ritual, and and I was dying, you know, learning how to, how to take the cracking open of the psychic ground as the beginning of a ritual. And what that means ultimately is 
the ritual is not repetitive. You have to make it on the spot. And that felt to me legitimate for those coming from a culture that lost its own rituals. So then I called that working with the rudiments of ritual to meet the uh, legitimacy of the occasion. Mm. And so we were working at radical ritual fairly early on. And the how do you trust that, right? Because mm, ritual can lead to using power easily. And so what we did was make it based on vulnerability, um, woundedness, and healing. At least that's what I thought we were doing, well, we were doing that. And that's another reason why it didn't go out in the public very well, because you're going to lose that part. So that work and considering what was happening to younger men, but also younger women early on for me, mm-hmm. uh, led to doing uh, mentoring work. Mm-hmm. And and the same thing I have found in mentoring. The key in mentoring is authenticity. It, it, it's not learning a bunch of skills. It, it, it's it's actually showing up in the moment. And that, that became, mm-hmm. and that's what writing is about. That's what music is about. Mentoring, like in ritual, authenticity is the key. Mm. It's the key. It's the only way to keep everybody straight. It's fine to have a uh, a ritual practice or a uh, routine. You know, like I visited a lot of men's groups. People started forming men's groups. Great idea. Mm. It's like one of the old, oldest ideas in the world, but it's a great <laughs> idea. But what are they going to do? And so what I found is a lot of them, after a year or so, were stuck because mm-hmm. I would hear from them. So then I would go to, you know, participate, see what's going on, sit down, usually a circle. So I remember that one of the first times I went to this group, they were interesting enough guys, but they were stuck. And what happened is you sit down and then they pass the talking stick. And so the first guy takes the stick and he's saying something that sounds very repetitive to me. So I just said, excuse me, have you like told this story a lot before something? And someone says, you can't talk, you don't have the stick. Mm. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. It sounds like he's not talking either. He just has the stick. I would, I want to know how many times have you heard this from him? And everybody said, oh my God, we hear it every month. So I said, no, that's not how you do this. I said, so now you're hiding behind a stick. So, so now we're in a big tension because that's what they've been doing for over a year. year. And, and, but it proved my point. I said, no, honesty, authenticity would be to say, man, you know, I mean, I respect you. I even like you to some degree, but uh, I don't like you when you tell that story in that pompous way that you keep doing every week. So would you please cut that out and tell me where you're really bleeding from? Mm. That'd be a men's group. Mm. I would say, well, that would be a human group. I don't know. But you know what I'm saying? That's mm. the danger. Mm. The danger is to create things that initially seem like they're leading to a deeper place, but eventually wind up becoming uh, mechanisms for avoiding mm. the deeper place. And that's always the challenge. I think it's the challenge in ritual, by the way. Mm. It is the, ch- you know, I mean, if you go back far enough, if, you, if you're in a sweat lodge and something's going wrong, the leader is supposed to say, I think we're at odds with the spirit that we're seeking. Mm. I mean, that's a legitimate thing. That ha- if it isn't authentic, for instance, a sweat lodge, a lot of people are familiar with it. It can either create the heat that causes healing and transformation. And if that doesn't happen, it's baking in mm. the inauthentic. 
And so I've watched this happen, not just in sweat lodges, but in heated rooms mm. and realized that the main job is to be authentic when the situation gets meaningful. Mm. And that's true, I found in mentoring also. In the previous interview I mentioned, you had a, a line about this relationship between wildness or the wild and form, that wild needs form. And I feel like there's a bit what you're saying here, the sense yeah. that you know when a form becomes too overtly sort of oppressive or, or just going through the motions, there's no wildness. And I'd love to hear, again, this relationship, how this can be utilized in a, in a soulful way. So early on in that, those early events, original events, I wanted to try ritual. Um, but I didn't know if I had the permission to do that. I didn't know from where do I draw that permission. And I knew no one present actually typically had any capacity uh, to genuinely um, open it up. And, and, and yet I was so interested in it, I felt like, and it was natural from storytelling to go to almost ritual. So I focused particularly on this Australian tribe. And uh, they had a ritual that was the annual ritual where eight elders retreated into a particular place because they're very particular about the dream time and the dream place. And they knew where to go. And they would, uh, in their tradition, the, the elders bleed for the tribe. And they would uh, cut themselves and then they, they used the blood as a glue to glue onto their bodies all these feathers from birds that they've collected. And so they look like birds sitting in, 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 in the forest or the underbrush or wherever they are. And it takes eight of them to do the ritual to renew the tribe, uh, which also means renewing the dream and also means renewing nature. And then culture came in in, in a bigger way and uh, everybody was leaving and they realized they weren't getting any new elders and the next year they doubted if they would have eight elders. That means they couldn't do the ritual because the way they understood it, mm -hmm. it took eight of them. Mm -hmm. And they, and they realized that the ritual was going to die and, and they didn't know what to do. And so they wound up deciding to have it filmed mm -hmm. so that it wouldn't die forever. And so you can actually see it or read about it mm -hmm. in the middle of a 10,000, 10,000 year, that's what they estimate, 10,000 year old ritual intended to renew the tribe, the dream of life, and nature. They stop, and whoever's leading the ritual says, are we going the right way? That was it for me. That explained the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You can have a 10,000-year-old practice that is beautiful and meaningful. You, you can have a good intention, but in the middle of it where transformation becomes possible, the responsibility to say is to say, are we going the right way? From that, I got permission and I got this kind of information or knowledge about try to be authentic, question the process in the midst of the process. Mm. And, uh, and that starts to help with all the appropriation and all too, mm. because when you move a ritual to a different place, that ritual changes and, and so on. Anyway, that was the mm. most profound thing I found. And then that became, to me, the center of mosaic, all the all the events that we wound up doing after that, that's the question in the middle. Mm. Are we going the right way? Mm. I've sent that uh, in emails to the uh, 
White House and uh, to <laughs> to the Congress, who I notice are active again, or not only half of them. But anyway, I've sent it saying, you know, consider this mm. when you handle all that power. Here's the question. Are you going the right way? Mm. Is it producing healing? Because mm. if it's not, then it's pro- producing division. There's not any alternatives. Every alternative is temporary. Mm. So to me, men's work is healing work. And I think that's what it was in all the old cultures and why uh, young men were brought into the healing practices. But, you know, like Native American people will sometimes say, you know, you want to be on the healing road. You want to, you know, or why always uh, men were singing. That's the waking of the soul and it's hard not to feel the sorrow and then you're doing lament and now you're in Mm. the healing again. Mm -hmm. And... uh and I think it's supposed to be healing. And if it's not, then I know where it's going. Mm. It's going after power. Well, I really like that articulation that it is the soul's work of healing versus a kind of a political movement that becomes can easily become lost in, you know, itself as as kind of aggrandizing, you know, yeah. this this sense of needing to be seen or needing, you know, to experience power. Yeah, I've been invited to things where it's about men's rights. And I say, well, I'm interested in that, but let's start with men's wrongs, and then <laughs> we might have a better eye for what's right. Mm. You know, I mean, men have to watch it, mm-hmm. especially in cultures where there's an unconscious kind of uh, power formation. Mm. The previous wave of the mythopoetic men's movement really seemed to be drawing a lot of uh, both inspiration and orientation from Bly's Iron John, of course, became a huge hit and uh, also king warrior magician lover often gets referenced and um, you know the archetypes of the the king the lover the magician and the warrior and i wonder as you you know here decades later do you still think those maps are valuable in this age or do you do you have other maps that have come to you um, around masculinity or what stories about masculinity you know have come to you that may provide a, a more current and a dynamic response to this moment of what it means to be a man? Uh, that's an interesting way to frame the question. So, so part of, you know, sometimes I feel like the last man standing with regard to all that stuff. I mean, Robert Bly is still alive, but he's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Robert Moore passed tragically. Mm-hmm. So I remember in, again, early on, you can't codify an archetype. That's why I say if we really want to look at the wild man, let's look at the green man. The wild man represented the wilderness, Hmm. not just wild men. I mean, men acting wild, you know, (laughs) that's, that's like a bad TV show. I think (laughs) it was, it was like, you know, I, I don't have it out here, but in the house, I have one of these old, uh, uh, masks of the green man, Hmm. which, which represented, um, nature in a kind of a masculine form coming into culture. Mm. And, uh, and so the, the wildness includes that. And that part, part is val- could be valuable. Now the story of the wild man, the way Robert Bly told the, the German fairy tale mm-hmm. is fascinating. It's fascinating, but it's really, it has mythological twists and turns that people just skip and just try to condense the archetype. And I think that's what happened with King warrior, magician, lover, mm. And I, I, I'm getting old enough. <laughs> I just tend to tell the story. Mm-hmm. So the, we had arguments because I would say, you can't say this for archetypes. Mm. 
Mm. You just can't do that. That's an imposition on the soul, on the psyche, on the imagination, on the wilderness. There is an endless number of archetypes. Mm. Now you can take certain ideas out and symbolically look at them symbolically, and those four are pretty interesting, but mm -hmm. so is the wild one being mentioned by the other guy sitting on the other side uh, that won't, won't allow itself, hopefully, to be categorized or, or reduced. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's a reduction quality there that I, that I don't like. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and I told the authors and everybody at the time that too. I mean, we, we would talk about it. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so the soul produces archetypal energies all the time is how I understand it. And so those things are helpful to me. They're like, uh, it's like, uh, starter, mm. starter trees when, when the forest isn't already there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Something like that. I mean, I like some of that, but I don't like the codification. I, and I think that goes along with the muscular framing that then becomes the same old guys marching with mm -hmm. just now the flag say warrior lover. <laughs> mm -hmm. My concern with that. I love that. This idea that the soul is is constantly generating infinite archetypes. And in that sense, it's almost like the soul is a is a happening that's constantly happening. Yeah. Instead of a kind of, oh, I need to yeah, impose upon it a structure yeah. that therefore kind of locks it in a cage. Yeah, because all of those the, okay, so that idea didn't come uh simply out of nowhere. It came when it was a derivation of, um, I forget her name right now, the woman who worked with Jung. Oh, Marion Woodman? No, no, no. This oh, okay. is back before oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Naming four feminine archetypes. That's where the idea came from. And this was a, a kind of a, a matching to that. Hmm. And so, so that's an older psychological idea that, uh, you know, Jung liked fours. And so, that, but it started out there were four feminine ones, and then this, you know, so anyway, interesting, good stuff. Yeah. And then the soul, like a river, never simply stays its course, mm -hmm. no matter who's at the course. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is valuable, or what have you found then, as you work with men, as you say now, you still gather, and, and of course you work with a lot of different folks now, but what do you feel... Or what has been valuable in terms of looking at the map of the soul, particularly for men or, or in men's spaces? Like what, what has continued to remain valuable for you in doing this work? Hmm. Well, if it's, if it's authentic, if it's genuine and people come together, um, I'll just say something about the process also. The way those events and mosaics and events to this day go, there is no plan mm -hmm. per se. Mm. You get together and try to say, okay, what do we think? It's, it doesn't mean you don't know stuff. It, it just means that you don't assume that there's a plan. Mm. And so, I mean, imagine Robert Bly, James Hillman, Terry Dobson, all kinds of people I could name, Robert Moore there at times. And the, it begins with us saying, what are we doing? Mm. What are we, we going to do? And usually the question would become, what's the story? Mm. And then... That was often my job is to say, well, here's the story I'm most interested in. And then everybody, then we talk about the story and then we would use the story as the territory. Hmm. And with the assumption or the experience that you can never get to the bottom of a story. Hmm. 
And so, I mean, a real story, a genuine story, a mythic story. And so I guess in a way, is if it goes to the mythic, which means the soulful, spiritual, surprising mm. territory where you don't know what you're going to encounter. And, and then if the people doing it can have that care enough to challenge each other, mm. then, then I think things are probably going to be all right. Mm. And everybody will learn something. Um, but if it, once it gets codified, mm -hmm. There's a tendency for it to become more like fraternity and more like, a, you know, club. And, and then here's the rules and mm -hmm. here's the talking stick. And, you know, I'm usually gone before that gets mm -hmm. passed. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to put that down, but uh, I do know something about the tradition of that, too. Mm -hmm. And it comes from a much deeper root than just uh, organizing. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, you had an expression there. You said, if you have the courage, I think the courage to care to challenge each other yeah. as an essential piece, actually, uh, like to compassionately challenge as a way almost of protecting the aliveness of the ritual of the, of the gathering. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, I like Carl Jung's idea of friends of the self. Mm -hmm. And so you want friends of the soul, friends of the self. And that's what that became for me, was in the midst of what of the heat of what we were doing. Oh no, are we making really big mistakes? Or how did why did we do that? Mm -hmm. All that kind of stuff. You get so close to someone else, and then mm -hmm. you realize, I love them, understanding their tendencies and weaknesses, and then you have a responsibility once you love someone to say, you know, I think you're doing what you do when you're insecure. I think I'm seeing it right <laughs> now. So, mm -hmm. so if why don't we just not go down that road unless we have to. Mm -hmm. And, and then, and that was the challenge of, of sitting, we call it the bench, sitting on the bench together is to be real. And if it's not happening, then it's, it's addressed immediately afterwards. Mm -hmm. You know, like that wasn't, I don't believe you. I, you, you're actually putting something forth there and I don't believe it. Maybe mm -hmm. fill me in. Mm -hmm. Maybe I, I missed something, but I think you just were running something right then. And I don't think that's what we need. Do that in academia. I'm not mm -hmm. gonna. Don't have to do it here. Yeah. Wow. What do you think's the story? And again, this all the caveats around coming up with some kind of universal anything. But what do you think's the story for men in this moment? You know, post Me Too has happened. There's there's this climate, of course, of a kind of reckoning about particularly white men. But yeah, for you, what is what is the mythology actually of this moment that that men can actually use to craft meaning from, rather than a simple, you know. Men are terrible, you know, they got to pay. Like, of course, that's a bad story, I think. But there's yeah. something else I feel that's present. And I wonder for you looking at, you know, the cosmology of stories that you've yeah. been, what, what is most sort of, uh, yeah, meaningful to you now? That's a really good question. I really like how you're thinking about all this stuff and reflecting on it. So I think the problem with now um, is that most things are falling apart. I mean... Culture is almost collapsing on in its institutional forms, which tend to be hollow mm -hmm. now and can't respond to everything that's going on. And culture and nature is kind of unraveling. Mm -hmm. So we're in a very unusual period. We don't know how long it's going to be. And so uh, people fall back on things like masculine, feminine, men, women. I mean, it's confusing to me because masculine doesn't mean men. How could it? You know, I mean, it's, I like, 
ideas like yin and yang, which can go anywhere in any form. But but anyway, I understand that socially people want to define gender and gender roles. But I really don't think it's going to work out very well going forward here. And I think the um, kind of breaking open of the arc of gender mm. that you see happening with children uh, and you see it happening with a lot of young people and more transgender and more variations on gender. I really think that's the soul saying we're going through this period with very few stable things. Mm. And so don't bet on stability and gender either. So having said that, you still have men and you still have have women. And um, so all the stories that I get interested in anymore are about when everything goes wrong, what do you do? How do you act? And so Native American stories of healing in the midst of chaos mm. are really rich. Um, the idea of being present when the weaving of the world unravels mm. it, and then you look for the the thread to meaning that's nearest to you. And, and that thread I wouldn't pre-describe as masculine or feminine. It's just a thread you better grab mm. and figure out how to work with. And, and that's really hard mm. when some part of us thinks that we're supposed to be a man or men this way or, you know, it's really a hard time for that. Mm. And so I don't, I don't know how people are dealing with it. Mm. I really like that you're having that kind of question. I do have an old idea I like, Please. which is comes from Ireland and it's kind of scary. Mm. And, and it kind of says that you're only a man when you're being true to yourself. And so what I think that means philosophically is there is no general man mm. or general men. And that you look at someone and say, I think it's a dude or I think it's a, a male in the species. But the reason I'm thinking about that is I see a genuine person there in that form. Mm. I mean, it's a really challenging idea. It could be true for women too, that you're only actually a man when you are yourself, if you're a man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's not helpful for those trying to, you know, Mm -hmm. work out the gender stuff mm -hmm. but it's an old idea yeah you know it actually harkens back to i think again in that interview i read you'd use this phrase around like the gender domains or something like that yeah. and that there's also an inheritance like a myth mythological inheritance that goes with genders and uh something that uh sharon blackie in the interview we did she said something really interesting about trans as well that it does it doesn't seem to be many myths pre-existing myths around that gender but that that's not necessarily a problem that this is the mythological time for those myths to be to be born and to be maybe uh, uh, uncovered. And yeah. so, yeah, I feel like in what you're saying that it's almost like the drive to find a universal gender expression is itself a kind of a need to land somewhere that feels we've got it, we arrived, but this is a like a liquid time yeah. where so much, as you say, is, is kind of, you know, dissolving. Yeah, which is really challenging to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, I think the issue is, can we become ourselves? Mm. And then, and that will be, you know, hard to define. It's, it's another thing that's in process. It's always becoming. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I still think it's different if you're working with a group of men than if you're working with a group of women. There are differences. Um, but I think 
we're not in that time where the, so you have the social realm and the social level where uh, there are norms of gender expectation mm-hmm. and and then you have the biological level where there are gender differences but when the closer you get to the soul and interestingly enough in many cultures the closer you come to being an elder because you st- early on the the fetus um is not defined hmm. gender wise actually it tends to be feminine uh and then later in life the the elders are losing some of the more expected <laughs> uh gender capacities and and or appearances mm-hmm. and so the idea is there is something deeper and and that's helpful if you imagine that we're in a time when when the roles cannot be codified or sustained very readily mm. and maybe shouldn't be maybe that's what's really going on mm. uh mm. the other thing i would say is in studying various cultures there's always the ground between betwixt and between the men and the women which is inhabited by the healers and the seers mm. uh who are seeing both deeper and beyond what other people are seeing mm. and so not, another way to understand it might be is that center ground where culture is empty in the center but when it comes to gender issues the center ground where uh no definition or or transdefinition or multiple definition is occurring is getting big, bigger. Mm. And mm. that might be filling the middle that's otherwise empty. Mm. And in many cultures, those who are in between or mixed together, whatever you want to call it, the two spirits, the 10 spirits, I don't know what you happen to have, mm-hmm. uh, they're the healers too. They're the visionaries and the healers. Mm-hmm. And so it may be that the healing space between genders is actually trying to grow too. Beautiful. You mentioned elder, and it was a phrase that you used in the past, which was that elder is not a continuous state, that it is a, an eruptive, imaginal thing. And I wonder for you to, to speak to this sense yeah. of what, it, what does it mean to be an elder now uh, at, at this moment, you know, in this state of dissolution, this state yeah. where there's a, perhaps a you know, tyrant king on the throne. You know, what does it mean to be an elder now? Well, I want to start with the youth because... Um, the youth are not young. Mm-hmm. In a time like this, with the weight coming down, uh, the youth themselves are not young. And so that tells you that uh, youth is not an age. It's a condition of soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then the same was always true of the elder. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for the, the joke in some cultures is you go to see the elder, he or she's napping. <laughs> and, 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 you know, or or, or you're in a, critical moment and you and you bring in the elder and you hope they're not having an elder moment mm. you know mm-hmm. so so the you know people used to joke about it because it's not a person mm. it's a condition so that the that which we would call an elder in the sense that they would have some wisdom they would have a sense of guidance that we they would have a sense of grounded responsibility can happen in a young person mm. and and so it, it can't be simply connected to age there's another thing that has to be loosened up a little bit. Mm. And yet we hope that as people grow older, they go, grow wiser. Mm-hmm. What I think about a lot is, and I don't know how to activate this on the scale that it's needed. In this culture, I'm, we're sitting here in America. Um, the best thing that could happen in a way would be that the older people would stand up as elders. 
and say what's going on is wrong. Uh, we don't need lawyers to figure it out. Mm. We don't need, uh, you know, new rules to, to make it clear. Um, you feed children. You protect anyone who needs protecting, and you seek healing. And when you have excess, you give it to where it could do some good, and nature's calling on everybody. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's the role of the elders is to say that something has gone so far wrong. And then when I want to get more direct about it, I say what's happened is we've put negative elders in charge. Mm-hmm. Because when a person gets old, neutral is a very rare thing in life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't last long. So a person getting older uh, is either going to get more elder or get more, uh, I guess you could call it the negative elder. They're mm. going to go into uh, self-involvement. They're going to go into aggrand- aggrandizing and holding on to things. Mm. And they're going to k- get stuck in the past. And whereas the elder in a healthy way would be more considering of the future and what the future is going to hold for other people like younger people mm-hmm. and and more willing to sacrifice sacrifice is a big old idea for the elders the mm-hmm. elders will sacrifice like the ones in the aboriginal ones in australia i was talking about mm-hmm. the bleeding isn't like just a morose thing it's an indication that they're sacrificing for the tribe mm-hmm. and when they put the feathers on what they're doing is saying we're, we're trying to contact the spirit that would be helpful. We're trying to act as the spirits generously giving and trying to catch the vision or the meaning mm. for the rest of the tribe. Mm. And so I'd like to see some sacrifice and vision from elders. I mean it. I wish I, if I knew how to activate mm. that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and I'm not sure, but I think about it a lot. I write about it. People are supposed to be, I love the Native American idea Mm -hmm. that the elders make decisions based on seven generations down the line. Mm -hmm. That means you won't be around to see it. Mm -hmm. It's like you plant a tree now so that it would provide uh, shade and and Mm -hmm. what they call it, carbon Sequester? Carbon <laughs> sequester. Yeah. You gotta say new things now. So yeah. carbon sequester for the future. Yeah. And you won't be around to see it, but that doesn't mean you don't plant it now and understand something about that planting, mm. that, the, that that's its own fullness, knowing that you're putting something in the right place and you're, you're contributing to life. So the elders are supposed to be doing things that are life enhancing. And as soon as you watch people using power, whether it's power of wealth or power of politics, and they're not doing life-enhancing things, something has gone very wrong, mm-hmm. very wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I think it requires the, the the imagination of youth as well as elders to to uh, hopefully find another way to go and begin the healing. Mm-hmm. I feel we're almost to completion here. I'm really enjoying this. You've said that the, the, the only question that may be asked in the end is did you become yourself? Yeah, and I yeah. feel it to, to ask it of you, um, <laughs> not at the end, and hopefully many more years, yeah, and, and yeah. maybe the wondering that, have you lived in such a way that you really mm. feel you've become no, yourself? Another really good question. Mm. Um, so there's another way to interpret that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the way I get to that idea is um, either a person is born blank, mm. uh, tabula rasa, blank soul, blank slate, or they're born gifted and aimed. That's the two, two kinds of stories. And I like the gifted and aimed stories that all cultures had those stories until modern times, that each person comes in with natural gifts to give and they're aimed at something meaningful. So then if that's true, 
then at the end, the question is, did you do it? That's how you get to that question. The test at the end is, did it's not, did you follow the rules? Were you nice to people? Yeah. Do your children forgive you? All that stuff. No, it's, did you become yourself? So that's how that story goes. But there is a psychological level, which is not so much at the end, you're at the pearly gates and God sitting in judgment or all that kind of stuff. But the deep self is always sitting in judgment. So at any moment, a person could say, this could be my last moment. And from the point of view of the self, did I become myself? And, you know, uh, you know, I think about that too, because the becoming of oneself is an everyday thing. And, and so how do you sh keep showing up f for what's in the, in the day that you're entering or what comes along that day? So, I mean, I find that to be a great challenge. So all I could say is um, I wound up telling stories and that's true to my, to myself that, that makes sense inside me. Um, and I try to learn about healing all the time. And yeah, I'm, I'm not always sure. Although strangely enough, I become more sure when trouble is at hand. It's easy to measure. It's easier for me to figure out where I am. You know, so, you know, I started this mosaic group and it was all, it's all been based on going after trouble hmm. and, you know, going to places where the trouble is profound and you cannot deny it. So now you see what you have to offer. You see what your fears are. You see, hmm. you see what you know about healing. Hmm. And, uh, so I don't know. It's, I guess it's a matter of what's happening that day or mm -hmm. did we get ourselves into the right trouble? Then, then I think it's easier to measure, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, it's still an open question. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, really appreciate your time this afternoon in your beautiful studio. <laughs> good to be with you and really good questions. Thank mm -hmm. you for all the thought and reflection you're putting into the issues. Thanks for that. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Ian Mack. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash I-A-N-M-A-C-K to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.